You're listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. All right, this morning, the title is Hostility or Humility in James 4, 1 through 6, as Jack read. And as we get into this chapter, I, I get a little fired up because James 4 really, as you'll hear at the end of the message, James 4 is, is what shook my world. It, it turned me upside down and landed. When I landed, I landed on my knees in complete and total surrender to the Lord. So James 4 has a lot uh, to, to do with me even being here today. And I refer to this time a lot as being 25 years ago and had to kind of recalculate that. And it's actually been 30 years ago because I'm getting old-er. And uh, so 30 years ago, God just wrecked me with James 4 and uh, the Holy Spirit. So this passage really is something that it restored my marriage. It drew me back to him and literally thrust me into ministry. Um, And life has never been the same. Not perfect, have not arrived in any way, shape or form. I'm a work in progress as we all are, but I was once hostile towards God in every way and shape and form. And now I operate in humility and I do my best to humble myself before the Lord on a continuous basis. basis. He brings grace through humility and he shows mercy and extends grace to me that I don't deserve. It truly is in our humility that God shows us his love. It's in humility that he shows us his power. He extends even more grace and mercy on a daily basis. So today and next Sunday, as we work in James 4, we're really going to press into that. We're looking at how we can truly get things right with the Lord, maybe for the first time, or how we can continue with what we're doing in humility as we strengthen our walk with the Lord. So the opening question today is, where are you in your walk with the Lord? Are you walking in hostility towards God? Or are you walking in humility towards God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom we have to be here this morning. Lord, all of our hearts and minds, even thinking about what's going on in Israel and the battle that's there or uh, other conflicts around the world or then even locally, Lord, the state of our own nations and cities and God, all these different things that are happening around us. God, we're asking that you would just Calm our minds, calm our hearts, that you would draw us into your presence and speak to us this morning, that that you would open our eyes to see your word and to see where you are working in and through all of this and, and to see where you want us to go, to give us that fresh vision. And Father, that you would open our ears, that we may hear what you're saying, that we can hear it and that our heart is ready to receive it to receive that instruction, to receive correction or exhortation. So Lord, our simple prayer this morning is that you would just speak to us at our point of need. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If our faith is living and breathing, there's going to be a humble characteristic to it. However, if there's strife in our lives or there's strife within our Christian community, that community that we're part of, it's easily because there's hostility towards God. How many of you want to be hostile towards God? Anybody? You want to be antagonistic towards God, maybe aggressive or combative towards God? Anybody? No, because if you raised your hand, we'd have to stop and pray. James 4, 1 through 3, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask, you, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you can spend it on your own pleasures. So what is that source? What is the source of quarrels? What is the source of conflicts? How many of you would say you desire peace? No, we should see everybody's hand because I think we all desire peace, right? I mean peace personally. We're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but in knowing that we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, if you read scripture, you know that you're really praying for Jesus to come back because that's the genuine peace. But I'm talking about this morning, what James is talking about is personal peace, to have that peace of God in our lives, in our heart. I think we all want that, but we can't have peace. You and I can't have peace if we're constantly at war. Uh, last week in verse 18, we, we pointed out that, that to someone who uh, reaps peace right? Somebody who sows peace, reaps peace. Like we have to do some work. Like we have to lay some foundation. We sow those seeds of peace so we can reap peace. We're talking about being a peacemaker versus a peacekeeper. Being a peacemaker is somebody who is actively pursuing and laying a foundation for peace. I don't think any of us would purposely do anything to remove peace from our lives, but yet we do. We all know God's word, we believe God's word, yet that Christians have battles within ourselves on a daily basis, and then we have battles within our own ranks. Sometimes they get bitter, sometimes they cause severe damage. And yes, it can even happen in Calvary chapels. James is pointing out to the readers of this letter that they're actively engaged. These people are fighting among themselves. They're human beings. What caused them? What's the source? Now, if you were to ask anybody why they're fighting, what happens? Well, why are you guys fighting? Well, they did this or they did that, right? The fingers point back and forth at the other person. If I'm a Holy Spirit-filled believer and I'm arguing with another Holy Spirit-filled believer, one of us, if not both of us, are wrong. James insists that wars come from our passions that war, wage war against us. Conflicts emerging from within, things that we're battling with kind of bubble out. Personal spiritual battles that manifest in the flesh. That's what we have to remember that, that as we are in, engaging with people, if there's an argument or there's something going on, that it's a spiritual thing, right? We could go into a whole different study on how we're fighting against those powers of darkness. 
Barclay says it doesn't mean that there's a war within a man, although that's true, but they set men warring against each other. It's those thoughts, those desires, those things that cause us to battle and fight against each other. It's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. Pleasures, carnality, never in a Christian, right? There's no, there's no seeking of pleasures or carnality as a Christian. So can a genuine Christian be carnal? Maybe you've heard that term, carnal Christian. Before we can answer that question, we need to define the term carnal, and it comes from the, the Greek word sarkikos, meaning literally fleshly. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul uses it as a descriptor. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3 says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Paul calls them brethren, a term he exclusively uses in reference to Christians, but, but then he goes on to describe them as being fleshly, as being carnal. The conclusion from this passage is that, yes, Christians can be carnal. The Bible's very clear that no one is sinless. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thus, every time we sin, we're acting carnally or acting in the flesh. Now, we don't get stuck there. The key is understanding that as a Christian, a Christian can be carnal, can be fleshly at times, and maybe even seasons. But listen, a genuine Christian is not going to remain there. We can't remain in that state of carnality, of flesh. There are many who falsely teach and abuse the idea of being a carnal Christian, uh, telling them it is possible to come to faith in Christ and continue living their lives carnally without evidence of being a new creation or being born again. There's even some churches within our own city that, that promote Bible studies in bars. Now, at the front end of that, you might think, well, that's great. We're reaching into the bar and we're bringing people out. But they're not. They're going to a bar, reading their Bible, and drinking whatever they're drinking and not causing any change. Like, we're to be different. We're to be separate from the world. Yeah, go into the bar, get them, but bring them out. Don't sit in there with them. There are those that say, oh, live like hell all week. It's okay. Just come confess to me what you did. All will be well. This is wrong. It's, it's not biblical. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. The concept of Christian, a Christian living in the flesh is unbiblical. It doesn't mean we're not going to have struggles. It doesn't mean we're not going to fall. But as we see it, as we recognize it, we've got to make the change. We've got to make the correction in our lives. We saw in James 2 that genuine faith produces fruit, good works. Paul declares, Paul declares in Ephesians 8 that while we were saved by grace alone through faith alone, that salvation will result in works. So can a Christian in a time of failure or even in rebellion appear to be carnal? Absolutely. 
But will a true Christian, a genuine Christian, remain carnal? No, absolutely not. We cannot. We must not. We must make the change. And I don't want you to get lost in this next statement. I want you to hear me all the way through it. Eternal security is a fact of Scripture. Even the carnal Christian is still saved. Salvation can't be lost because salvation is a gift of God that he will not take away. And yes, the carnal Christian is assured of salvation. In 1 Corinthians 3.15, Paul says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so is through fire. That's standing before Jesus and all that stuff, all that junk in your life that doesn't glorify God is going to get burned. Are you going to be like that guy in the picture where the flame blew back on him and he's singed, doesn't have any eyebrows when you see Jesus? It's going to get burned away. But listen, this is the key. The question is not whether a person who claims to be a Christian or not but lives carnally has lost his salvation. The true question of that person that is living carnally is were they truly saved in the first place? We talk about that as we talk about backslidden Christians, right? Well, did they really backslide or did they ever really have a relationship with God? First John 2.19, it's not in the slides, it says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would not be shown that they are not all they are not of us see christians who become carnal in their behavior can expect god to lovingly discipline them so they can be restored to close fellowship with him and be trained to obey him how many of you like to be disciplined even as a kid we don't really like that you didn't line up to say oh my turn for a spanking but it's in that time of discipline that God brings us. He wants us to be saved. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature in our walk with him, to progressively grow closer to the image of Christ. And I know, I know when God has brought discipline to me. I, you can feel it. How am I going to respond to it? I need to receive it in humility. Okay, Lord, I understand. I messed up. I get it. In humility, we come before him. One of my favorite passages, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, literally laying yourself out there. God, I humble myself before you. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We could do a whole message just on those two verses. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. We should literally be becoming increasingly spiritual and decreasingly carnal. It's a process known as sanctification. Sin, the times we sin, the things we do, the sins we commit should become less and less and smaller and smaller. And we're always going to have sin. It's what the nature of this world is. But those things should change as you mature in Christ. And it's going to be that way until we're delivered from this sinful flesh sack that we live in. Until we're standing before Jesus. There's going to be outbreaks of carnality. Listen, for a, a genuine believer in Christ, these outbreaks of carnality are the exception, not the rule. 
We have to remember that Satan is trying to deceive us. He's trying to bring up those things from the past. He's trying to, to get us to be distracted. He's waging war against our very soul. And I often tell people, keep your head on a swivel. As you try to, to change, as you try to get closer to the Lord, as you try to read your Bible more and pray more and maybe step into ministry and to serve or, or just to be just closer to the Lord, the enemy comes in, doesn't he? He comes in from different directions. I say, keep your head on a swivel because there'll be attacks where you never saw something coming. And then he also comes in in those places where he's already attacked you and been successful so we've got to be aware of our surroundings. We've got to be aware of the attacks of the enemy, that we are truly fighting a spiritual battle on a daily basis. Be aware. Back in the passage, the source of wars and fights among Christians is always the same. There's a root of carnality. There's an internal war within the believer regarding lusts of the flesh. And as I said earlier, two believers who are both walking in the Spirit of God towards each other cannot live in wars and fights among themselves. Somebody has to be gone. One commentator said, James seems to be bothered more by the selfish spirit and bitterness of the quarrels than by the rights and wrongs of various viewpoints. I want to read that again. James seems to be bothered more by the selfish spirit and bitterness of quarrels than by the rights and wrongs of various viewpoints. You all think exactly the same as I do, right? No? And I don't think exactly the same as you. We have different viewpoints on different things, right? The idea is that, that we don't get caught up in fighting over those things. It's gonna be hard for some, but, but almost all who have such a critical and contentious attitude claim that they're prompted and supported by the Spirit of God. Well, God told me, well, the Holy Spirit impressed on me. Okay, well, let's talk about it according to the Bible. What does God's word say? And let's come to that understanding together in unity. James makes it clear that a contentious manner comes from our own desires. I'm going to be right no matter what. All right, it's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. A little bit <clears throat> kind of PG-13 here as we get into some of this. The types of desires that lead to conflict are described. Lust. Lust is covetousness. It, it leads to conflict. It's desiring something that is not yours. It's not yours. Anger and animosity lead to hatred and conflict and if left unchecked could lead to murder even the murder of somebody's character that's a big thing that happens today we have media and social media and all these different things that people say words and it destroys somebody's character it murders their character literally an accusation goes out and it's done James leans on the Sermon on the Mount again when Jesus used the word murder. It's to express more than killing, but an inward condition of a man's heart that shows outwardly through anger. And you can look at Matthew 5, 21 later. We most likely in our daily conversations, as I greeted you this morning, I didn't use the term murder, did I? We used God is good. <laughs> murder. It's a strong word. It, it's like hate. When I was with the girls 
my granddaughters, uh, Club Chaos as we call them. Um, we're at the carnival and we're hanging out and we're having a blast. We're having fun. They are having fun. And I'm supporting their fun. And we get back to the van and I'm helping Abby get them into the van and Abby and I are talking and just in conversation, casual conversation, she used the word hate. And it was in the, I don't even remember the total context. It had to do with an object that wasn't anything with a person. And all three of the older girls like came out of their car seats. Mom, you don't use that word. Well, that's good for them to see and recognize that word hate because it's so strong, isn't it? Murder is the same way. It's a very strong word. And isn't it interesting that our kids help keep us accountable? Watch your mouths, mom and dad. Hate and murder should be words that get a rise out of us. James uses it here for the shock factor. It's meant to startle them. It's meant to startle us, showing that what happens if unchecked anger deepens in hatred towards other. And the reality is that any sin that is left unchecked is going to bring destruction mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. We cannot leave sin running amok in our lives. It can't be unchecked. You lust and do not have. It points to the futility of this life, a life lived for desires and pleasures alone. Not only is it a life of conflict, but it's fundamentally an unsatisfied life. Spurgeon said the whole history of mankind shows the failure of evil lustings to obtain their object. Sin, unchecked, Lust unchecked, the tragedy and irony of bending to worldly and fleshly desires. If you engage in them, it's not going to bring satisfaction. It's a spiral that keeps sucking you down further and further. What goal are you trying to achieve? You're always going to be dissatisfied, and not for lack of effort. You keep trying to fulfill it, it's never going to be fulfilled it is going to drain the life out of you. And we tend to get gun shy about lust. We don't want to talk about it, especially from the pulpit. But this helps us understanding the folly of living in a life of fantasy and lust. As we referred to adhering to animalistic appetites, because we're not animals human beings with free will with free, free will and the grace of God and the strength of the Holy Spirit you are tempted to fulfill a sinful desire in you because you think or you hope that it may be satisfied but it will never be satisfied so then the question is why not accept your lack of satisfaction now instead of after much painful and harmful sin we have a choice of how we act and react. And remember, in that lust piece, maybe, you're not, maybe it's not physical lust that you're struggling with, but that covetousness of wanting and desiring something else that isn't yours, you've got to put those things in check. He says, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And that verse gets misused at times. It's seen as a, a give me verse putting God as a, a genie ready to grant every wish. And the reality is that we should be genuinely asking God for what we need in everyday life. 
especially but not exclusively in the area of physical needs and, and desires. So yes, you heard me right. You should talk to God about lust. Talk to him. Yeah, he knows, but he wants to hear you in conversation. But you also need to talk to him about your anger, about your covetousness, about your fears, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to God. I think you get the point. Talk to God about everything and anything. I, I, love, I love prayer. And I'm, all, I'm, a, man, I'm a pusher. I'm a prayer pusher. I want people to pray. I, I tell the team in, in the morning before we get started, man, pray with and for somebody. We have a prayer team here, but everybody that's, that's serving, everybody that's in this place can pray with and for somebody. We need to do that. Talk to God. The reason destructive desires exist among Christians is because they do not seek God for their needs. You do not ask. James reminds us here of the great power of prayer and and why one may live unnecessarily as a spiritual pauper simply because they do not pray or do not ask when they pray. We might state it as a virtual spiritual law that God does not give unless we ask. If we possess little of God in his kingdom, almost certainly we have asked little. Spurgeon said, remember this text, Jehovah says of his own son, ask of me and I'll give thee the heathen for thy inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. If the royal and divine son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect the rule to be relaxed in our favor. Why should it be? He goes on and says, if you may have everything by asking and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. I beseech you to abound in it. Do you know, brothers, what great things are to be had for the asking? Have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate you to pray fervently? All heaven lies before the grasp of asking men. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer. Prayer. The reality is when I get to heaven, the first thing I want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant, right? It's the first thing we want to hear. The second thing I want to hear is him say, well, man, you asked for everything you could possibly have asked for and I gave it to you. Instead of hearing him say, you know that one thing that you were really struggling with? If you would have asked me about that, I would have answered you. I would have heard you. That's why I encourage our team to pray. That's why we have a catalyst prayer once a month. We, we give space for people to pray and to press in. And, and the sad part on my side is very few people take advantage of that. And why? Pray little, expect little. Pray much, expect much. What is your expectation? What is your expectation when you talk to God in the morning? First thing I do when the alarm goes off, I'm praying, God, thanks for the day. Help me honor you today. Help me do the things that I'm supposed to do today. Let me glorify your name. And then I fall back asleep. Sometimes. Back to verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so you may spend it on your pleasures. James deals with the aspect of no prayer and now addresses the issue of selfish prayer. 
those he was writing to weren't praying consistently, and when they did, they did it with selfish motives. Now, here's the thing here. There's a couple things here to focus on. God will always answer our prayers, always. But it might not be the answer that you think it should be. And as I was doing this, I was thinking, you know, how many years I was praying for Pam and how we collectively prayed for Pam. God, bring healing, bring restoration. Lord, we just need you. And we prayed fervently, right? God answered the prayer. She's in heaven. She's completely healed. She's doing way better than we are. That's not the answer I was looking for. Right? God's always going to answer the prayer. But be ready for it to be his answer, not your answer. Also, the second thing is God, is, God knows what you're going to pray before you pray it. So then you might say, well, why then? <laughs> why should I pray? God already knows it. It's because he wants to hear you. He wants to have a conversation with you. The purpose of prayer is not for us to persuade a reluctant, distant God to do what we want or to give us what we want to have. But the purpose of us praying is having that meaningful conversation with God, the creator of everything you know. God, the author of your story. He's the one that wrote your story. He wants to have a conversation with you talking to him and making the request and aligning our will with his will. A good example is the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I pray, I can't be praying, Scott's will be done. It's not gonna work. God, your will be done in my life. Jesus even prayed that way in the garden before his crucifixion. Father, if you can take this cup from me, I don't want to do this thing. I just, man, take it away. But what did he come back to? All right, I know I'm supposed to do this. Not my will, but your will be done. Even Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father. My prayer for us is as we pray that we would never approach God with prayers that are to gratify our fleshly desires, to satisfy our flesh, to give us what we want, but to glorify him and to be in his will. The word spend here is the same verb used to describe the wasteful spending of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You know the story. He went out. He wanted his inheritance, and, and he spent it all on his own pleasures, and he had a great time and, until he was looking to eat the same slop of the pigs. He fulfilled his heart's desire until it drew him into that pig pen. Destructive desires persist. They're there, even if we pray. Because our, our prayers may be self-centered. They may be self-indulgent. We've got to, as we've said a couple of weeks ago, we've got to check our motives. We've got to check our attitude in everything we do. But especially when we're praying, what is the motive of your prayer? What is the attitude? Why are you praying what you're about to pray? We've lost the value of words because of electronic communication 
because of deceptive media, because of social media, we've lost the value. We've got to remember the importance and value of words that are well thought out, especially our prayers. Now, God knows you don't have to be that eloquent pray warrior. You know, you don't have to do it in King James either. Just talk to God. Think about what it is you're praying. How would you build a relationship with somebody else? If you never talk to your husband or you never talk to your wife, how good's that relationship? You've got to communicate. You want to build your relationship with God? You've got to communicate. If we're going to try to reach our own goals, if we're going to do that in our own strength, then we're going to find ourselves at odds with others, especially believers. If our goal is to do everything we can to gain success, to gain notoriety, prominence, it's going to come at the expense of our relationships. We've seen people do that as they climb the corporate ladder and get what they want to succeed. This is too high of a cost. It's a result of unchecked pride. This is why we don't want to ask God for help. We want to say that we did it. It's also, and this is key, it's also a realization that if I ask God about this one thing, he might say no. So I'm not going to ask him because I want it. And then we do it. Then we got to go back and ask God for forgiveness. But God might say no because he knows it's not what's best for us. Do you realize that, that we're a bunch of toddlers in adult bodies? We want what we want, and we want it now. My flesh wants this. Give it to me. Sometimes I've thought about with my granddaughters when we have one who still kind of throws some fits. I just wonder what she'd do if I did it. If I just flopped down on the ground and started screaming, kicking my feet, I don't know. Sometimes I think God sees us that way. We want it now in our flesh. We find it unacceptable that God would tell me no. When I tell one of my granddaughters no, they're mortified because Papa never says no. <clears throat> but when I do, ooh, wait, what? We don't like that. We don't like to be told no. Listen, the things that we obtain or those things that we accomplish outside of God's will, they're worthless. They're going to burn. They're going to be ash. God's way and the world's way are incompatible. Literally, it's a choice. God's way or the highway. And I'm sure Jeff Bailey has a t-shirt that says that on there. Why, you ask? John 3.19 explains, men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. They don't want it exposed by talking to God. If we live our lives trying to please other people or trying to please ourselves, then we're going to be at odds with the Lord. But if we live for him, we're shining his light. The world is going to be hostile towards us because our very presence convicts them of their sins, the things that they want to continue committing. You know, and I've seen that more than once. And I pray often, Lord, would you fill us to the Holy Spirit that, that when we walk into a room, we change the very atmosphere. I've watched that happen in some of the meetings here within the community as I've walked in as only one of maybe two or three pastors in the situation and, and I've watched some of the contention that happens just by saying, I'm a pastor. Oh no, half the table stopped talking to me. 
the power of your words. Remember we talked about the power of our words? When you talk to people and you're in those situations that are secular, that are outside of our, our body of faith, don't let your words be the words that offend people. Use God's word. <laughs> let it offend them. It's not on you then. You didn't say something you have to apologize for. Let it be God's word. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. Now we see James bring a strong rebuke for com compromise and covetousness in verses 4 and 5. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture speaks with no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. The New King James says adulterers and adulteresses. This is a, a rebuke presented in the Old Testament vocabulary. God spoke this way in the Old Testament when his people were attracted to some form of idolatry. They were drawn away from worshiping him and went into what the people in the land were doing. As James saw it here, their covetousness was idolatry, a friendship with the world. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, better Greek manuscripts only say, you adulteresses. Um, Bible scholar and translator James Moffat, he was born in 1870 in Glasgow, Scotland, said he uses the feminine form deliberately for one turn of special contempt of and scorn in the ancient world was to call a community or a group by some feminine equivalent. This is where we as Christians need to be Bereans. When we study God's word, we, we need to look and see what does it say and why does it say it so we can understand it more fully. The addition of adulterers was most likely added from an early scribe who thought James meant literal sexual adultery and didn't want to exclude men from the rebuke. But James used this phrase, you adulteresses, to give a specific spiritual picture. According to this picture, God, the husband, and his wife, the bride of Christ, right, that's us, that's the picture. Clark pointed out the, the Jews, because of their covenant with God, are represented as being espoused to him, and hence their idolatry and iniquity in general are represented under the notion of adultery. Trapp gives a more direct throat punch to this, so buckle up. You have your hearts full of, of harlotry, 
This vile strumpet of the world lays forth her two breasts of profit for pleasure and snares many for which she must be burnt as a whore by the fire of the last day. Didn't mince any words there. Remember back when I asked you if you hated sin? We talk about loving everything and everyone, but we really need to hate sin. How much do you hate sin? We must hate sin so much that it, the very thought of it turns our stomach. Because of the world that we're in, all this stuff that's around us, we kind of get callous, kind of get complacent. We see things, hear things. Oh, that's okay, that's thing. And we let it go. You know what? God, break our hearts. And, and when we hear and see those things, let it literally turn our stomach. God, that we may turn to you. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. James recognizes that we cannot be both friends of the world system and rebellion against God and friends of God at the same time. You can read Matthew 6, 24 later as well. Even the desire to be a friend, wishes to be a friend of the world, makes you an enemy of God. We could go down a list of being a friend of the world, couldn't we? What does that look like? That's where people want to go have compounds somewhere and put up walls and not let anybody else in. We're in the world, but we don't have to be of the world. How many of you woke up consciously this week or maybe even this morning and said, you know what? I think today I will stand in hostility against God. I'm ready. I don't think anybody did this. It doesn't seem like a good idea. Friendship with the world means you're standing in direct challenge and defiance against God. And we love to look at the Bible and, and we look at the early church and, and we think that, man, that's the way we want to be. That's who we want to model ourselves after. And they had it all together. And no, they didn't. We see that through James's writing and through Paul, through John. We romanticize how amazing it would have been to be there, and James is giving us that reminder that it was not perfect. The early church was full of people. Our church is full of people. The body of Christ is made up of people. There's plenty of carnality and worldliness to deal with. The New Testament church, of course, is a great pattern for us, but we can't over-romanticize the spiritual character of early Christians. Guys, they were living out their faith and walking through things just like we are today. The same. I, I feel like sometimes maybe it's harder for us because we have so much stuff, knowledge, technology, and other stuff. But it was, it was just as hard for them. They were still battling the flesh. Satan was still attacking and pushing and pressing from every side. Living out their faith. And it's encouraging to me that they, they was, there was a struggle. And what do we get for that? We get to read it. We get to see the instruction and how they came through it on the other side. And, and they were okay. And that's encouraging to me. It says, He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit walks alongside us before we're a believer, drawing us to the Father. When we become a believer, he, he indwells in us at that time of salvation. And then as a believer, he empowers us with the Holy Spirit. That's what helps us uh, proclaim the gospel and point people to Jesus. 
It brings an intense desire for us to build friendships with other believers and, and especially build that relationship with God the Father. It is the Holy Spirit that brings conviction and draws us to him. The Holy Spirit that brings conviction to the Christian who maybe is living in compromise. To translate this was a bit difficult for them. The question is, is God jealously yearning for the devotion of our spirit, which he put in us? Or is the spirit within us jealously yearning for the full devotion of our heart? Either way, the result is full devotion to God. Are you all in? So the main point that James agrees with is the many passages of the Old Testament that God tells us he is a jealous God. He wants to have that relationship with us. He doesn't want anything in the way of it. Barclay says the idea is that God loves men with such a passion he cannot bear any other love within the hearts of men. David Guzik said, think of the inner pain and torture inside a person who is betrayed by an unfaithful spouse who must reckon with the truth. I am faithful to them but they are not faithful to me. This is what the Spirit of God feels regarding our world-loving hearts. It breaks his heart. This next statement that's in our passage, Billy Graham uses often. If you listen to him teach, there's a, on my Sirius XM in the truck, it have the Billy Graham channel, and so drive around listening to Billy Graham. And he'll, instead of quoting it, the, the scripture where it's found, he says, the Bible says, right? He uses that a lot. It's a good reminder for us. That you can do that too. If you're not remembering a scripture when you're witnessing to somebody, you can say the Bible says and come back around to him later when you know it. But here James is saying scripture says. Now all there's no, there, there's no passage that's directly tied to this, no exact quote from the Old Testament. He's presenting the idea that's alluded to several passages without quoting any specific passage. He's summarizing truth that's expressed in the Old Testament. As we get into this last verse, I'm not gonna spend as much time on it because we're gonna start with it next week as well. But there's a key here that I want you literally to chew on this week to think about, to pray over, to, to understand. The question is, what is it that will bring the solution to all the strife and the struggles that are in our lives? Surrendering to all, to all to God in humility. That's what brings it. It's getting things right with God. It doesn't mean that all the circumstances are gonna get better or that you're gonna be perfect, but, but you're gonna be in a better place. You're gonna be prepared to handle things because your relationship with God will be on track. When we look at verse six, as we close out the message today, it says he gives greater grace before, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. As we know the Holy Spirit convicts us of compromise, the very same Holy Spirit will also grant us grace to serve God as we should. And that next statement he gives grace. He gives more grace. That's much better than being opposed by God for our pride. And there's a difference in different, there's different types of pride. There's a pride that God hates in Proverbs 8, 13. There's a kind of pride we can feel about a job well done, which is okay, Galatians 6, 4. Or there's a pride that we express over the accomplishment of loved ones, 2 Corinthians 7, 4. 
but the kind of pride that stems from self-righteousness or conceit, that's sin. And God hates it because it's a hindrance to seeking him. Pride gets in the way of our relationship with God. Spurgeon said, observe how weak we are and how strong he is, how proud we are, how lordly he is, how erring we are and how infallible he is, how changing we are and how immutable he is, how provoking we are and how forgiving he is. Observe how in us there is only ill and how in him is only good. Yet our ill but draws his goodness forth and he still blesses. Oh, what a rich contrast. Can we even understand the depth of God's grace? And he keeps giving it to us regardless of what we do. God is opposed to the proud. It's interesting that we have something in our world that we celebrate today using that word pride. We just had pride month this last summer, right? God help us. Pride does indeed come before the fall, individually and as a society. At the same time, James reminds us that the grace only comes to those who are humble. Grace and pride are eternal arch enemies. Pride demands that God bless me in light of my merits, whether real or imagined. But grace will not deal with me on the basis of anything in me, good or bad, but only on the basis of who God is. That's a good thing. James used a, James used a powerful word in that phrase, opposes the proud. That trap said, God resists the proud. He sets himself in battle array against such above all other sorts of sinners, as invaders of his territories and foragers and plunderers of his chief pleasures. Do you want God to set a battle array against you? <laughs> I don't. But as we sin and, and we push back against God, we're, we're literally asking him to oppose us. As we sin, we're in a sense telling God, I don't really believe in you. Because if we truly believe in him, we're not going to sin, are we? Remember, as we've been teaching through God's word, once we hear something, once God speaks to us in his word, we're the ones that, that are responsible to act on it. This is kind of heavy today, isn't it? But God gives us an out. He gives us grace. He gives grace to the humble it isn't as if our humility earns the grace of God, but in our humility, we have a true heart position to receive what God gives us freely. We get to readdress this next week as well. The question is, are you living in humility or in hostility towards God? You see, this passage, as I said at the beginning of the message, this passage is a big deal in my life because it literally changed me I was raised in a Christian home at five years old I remember um, asking Jesus into my heart right that's the way I was raised that's what I was around in middle school and high school I did what most Christian kids did we went to the altar and rededicated our lives every week altar call oh yeah I'm gonna rededicate my life that was the pattern at 17 years old something amazing happened. I was called into ministry. 
It was amazing. There was a, a, a time, a season there where, man, I'm praying with, with people and kids and I'm sharing my faith and praying for people who, who we saw some crazy miracles, awesome things. But yet even in that, I chose to do what my father had shown me. He showed me how to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It wasn't a genuine faith. When I got married, I continued to live the same way. I did the same thing and it nearly destroyed my marriage and my family. I wanted a divorce. I was drinking, I was promiscuous, I was angry, I was selfish. I pushed God, I pushed Pam, I pushed Brandon, my son. I pushed them all away, my family away, as far as I could. If it wasn't for the intervention of the Holy Spirit and the obedience of dear friends, I'm convinced that I would be dead today. That's the path I was on. But God. If that hadn't happened, if, I, if God hadn't intervened, I wouldn't have had my amazing daughter. I wouldn't have four of those amazingly crazy granddaughters. I would have missed it all. Jesus left the 99 to find the lost one. When my friend Jeff called me at a bar that he shouldn't have known I was at because I wasn't even in the city and said, hey, you know what? God's grace is bigger than you think. You need to come home. Oh, no, you don't understand, man. I've just, I'm off the rails. I've done this and this. and that. No, no, no. God's grace is bigger than that. You need to humble yourself and come home. That night I drove home. I went to the town home where they lived Pam was there, Brandon was there, my son. We talked, we prayed, we cried. We reconciled. She slept on the couch, I slept on the floor. That, that next day we went to church. I could take you to the church. I could take you to exactly the spot where my knees hit the floor as this passage was being taught. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That prayer at that time that I had, God, I will do anything you want me to do. Forgive me. I believe. I confess that you are Lord. I believe that God raised you from the dead. I will serve you any way you want me to, even if it means cleaning the bathrooms in this church. And that was a big church. It had a lot of bathrooms. It's in humility that God extends his grace. I had been living in hostility towards God. I was vehemently opposed to God. And that came to a head. God extended his grace. His grace to me. Somebody who didn't, I didn't deserve it. I was a terrible human being. But it gave me grace anyways. And in humility, I surrendered it all. The song that I heard at some point in that time, you hear me quoted every once in a while at the end when we do the altar call. But the, the chorus is, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what the scar. It doesn't matter what the sin. It doesn't matter if you've fallen somewhere along the way. There's healing for your life today. Because that healing is through Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. This whole passage, everything we talk about in humility and it's being broken before the Lord. And it's pointing to the cross. Pointing to the cross. 
It's from the grace of God extended to you and I through the blood of Jesus that was shed on that cross. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but yet he still gives us grace. When God created the heavens and the earth, man and woman, we've talked about it before, it was good, it was perfect. It was with the intention of having a relationship between God and man to worship him. And Satan came in and undercut it. That's when sin entered. It broke that relationship with God. But God had a plan. God was there to, to give grace, to allow us to have that restored relationship. He sent Jesus, his son, to earth to be the ultimate sacrifice for you because he loves you so much. He has a purpose and a plan for your life. The Bible also says that if we confess and believe, we will be saved. Confessing that Jesus is Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead. Confess and believe. God's extending his grace to you this morning. As we close out this service, it's for you. It's for you. He loves you that much. You don't have to clean yourself up before you do it. I wasn't. I was a mess when I left Fort Collins. I was a train wreck. God took me and began to do a work. And I'm still a work in progress. I have not arrived until I'm in heaven in front of Jesus. We're all a work in progress. We all have a choice. We all have free will. We can choose to confess and believe and spend eternity in heaven, or we can choose to decline and spend eternity in hell. That's the reality of it the gospel message, salvation through Jesus Christ. Confess and believe. So this morning, if you're in this room or you're listening online, if you feel that prompting of the Holy Spirit, you feel that stirring, I'm gonna ask you to say a simple prayer. It's a conversation between you and God. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, let's pray something like this. If this is you, say, dear God, I know I need you in my life. I ask you to forgive me for being prideful, for being hostile. God, I don't want to oppose you. I confess that Jesus is Lord. I believe that you raised him from the dead. Jesus, please be Lord of my life. Help me. Use me to bring hope to others. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, it's just the beginning. It's a journey. It's a lifestyle choice. I encourage you to let me know that you prayed it or let one of the guys or gals know that have a lanyard on and, and they'll pray with you. We'll get you a Bible. If you prayed it online, shoot me an email, scott at foothillscalvary.org and I'll get back to you as well. Now for the rest of us who are believers, followers in Christ, there's two things. If you proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, but you're living as a carnal Christian, you need to stop. It's that simple. Remember we said about Pastor Ed, that message I heard, what, eight, nine years ago? Are you sinning? Stop. Whatever's going on in your life, it's if, if it's not glorifying God, we've got to stop. There has to be a point of surrender. And it's the same surrender we just talked about with those that maybe don't have a relationship with God. It is us literally saying, God, forgive me and help me and stopping it. We go to him in humility 
And he's there extending the very same grace that we just talked about. And if you've already done this, this is the second part of this, if you've already done that, but you keep feeling this, this attack, Satan's gonna get in there and he's gonna try to get you to look back. I had this conversation half a dozen times the last two weeks. Well, yeah, but I did these things back here. Well, I did that thing. That's Satan, he's in there pushing. He doesn't want you to look forward to what God has for you. He wants you to remember the bad things. No, we look forward, we look ahead. Isaiah 43, 19, behold, I will do something new. Now it springs forth, will you not be aware of it? I make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is taking you to new things. Don't live in the past. You can see the scar, you can look back and know you did that thing, but don't stay there. God's got stuff in front of you, things for you to do. And I wanna pray for you specifically in those two those two areas. So again, with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm gonna close this out in prayer and then we're gonna worship. But if this is you, if you would say, Scott, I, I need to get things right with God. There's, there's things in my life that just need to go. I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hand just so I know who I'm praying for. Are there stuff that, that needs to go? Thank you. That's good. The second part of that, if you've already done that, but Satan's digging in there saying, hey, look what you did, look what you did. You have to remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and God is doing a new thing. If you want prayer specifically for that, I just want you to slip your hand up as well. That the enemy's been in there digging. There you go, thank you. You just want that to be relieved. So let's pray. Father, I... I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of it, that it speaks to us. Father, I, I pray for those who, who need to get things right with you, that there's things in their life that just need to go, things that maybe they've gotten callous with. God, would you help them to see it? Would you let that, that sin, that carnality, literally make them sick to their stomach, bring conviction, and then fill them with your Holy Spirit, that they can make wise choices moving forward. And they can be strong, Father. And Lord, those that have already done that, those that, that the enemy is trying to get in there and bring them guilt and shame, Father, would you, would you push that aside? Would you rebuke the enemy in Jesus' name and help them to remember that there is no condemnation because they are in you. And you are doing a new thing. So give them vision and passion to run after that vision, Father. Strengthen them. And we pray, now, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the, our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. My prayer for you is that your faith is seen and that God is glorified in all that you do. In Jesus' name. has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. 
We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.